Wow. I don't know what I do for an encore after an introduction like that. So, uh, drugs, drugs, drugs. I just need to get a sense of where all of you are coming from on this to begin with. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you to raise your hands if you would be so bold in response to a few questions. For those of you watching it on video elsewhere, please do the same if you feel safe doing so. First of all, how many of you believe that the war on drugs has worked? Good. <laughs> Nobody raised their hand, by the way. How many of you believe it could really work if we only cracked down harder? Raise your hands. Good. How many of you think we should legalize marijuana? Raise your hands. Whoa. How many of you don't think we should raise your marijuana? Raise your hands. And how many of you aren't sure? Okay. How many of you think we should legalize all drugs? Raise your hands. How many of you think we should not do that? Raise your hands. And how many of you aren't sure? I'd say it was about a quarter, a quarter and a half on that one right there. How many of you have ever smoked marijuana? Oh, I'm proud of you. Okay. And how many of you have ever used a psychedelic or MDMA ecstasy? Raise your hands. And how many of you have never done so? Raise your hands. There's still time. Uh, uh, so, but let me all say, how many of you, on the other hand, have ever lived with a friend or loved one struggling with a drug addiction? Raise your hands. Okay, so you know, you know that what we're talking about are substances, are plants and chemicals, right, that can be absolutely remarkable and wonderful sources of pleasure in our life and also sources of incredible devastation and destruction that can tear people apart, that can tear their loved ones apart and their community, that can put other people at risk on the roads, in the workplace, and in our society. And that those are oftentimes the same substances that so many of us also use as medicines, as sources of spiritual insight and pleasure, of relaxation, those same things. I mean, yes, we can make our distinction, you know, and I am, I do fall within that kind of I love my marijuana and occasional psychedelics field, right? And I'm a little more dubious, a lot more on the heroin, the cocaine, and the methamphetamine stuff. We can make that divide up to a certain extent but only up to a certain extent. Only up to a certain extent. Because when people say to me, Ethan, you know, sometimes you're out here talking, pioneers, you're just talking to the faithful, the converted. And you know what I know? On some level, yes. I could see by that show of hands that you are my allies and you are, in some respects, quote unquote, the converted. You believe in this set of values that leads one to believe that we don't need a war on drugs in our society or around the world anymore. But what I also know are two things. That in your struggles, and in the struggles that lead you to be here at Bioneers, probably the large majority of you, even the majority of you living in the state of California, have probably not personally engaged in this struggle. Yes, you've probably voted to legalize medical marijuana, and in a few weeks you're going to vote to get rid of the, uh, or try to downgrade the three strikes reform on the ballot initiative, Prop 36, right, and, and get rid of the death penalty in California, right, you'll do that. And when the day comes four years from now, when you get a chance, I hope, to legalize marijuana in the state, you'll vote for that as well. But it's going to take more than that. It takes more, it takes that level of engagement, of course. The same sorts of engagement we talk about in respecting the environment, it takes that level of engagement too when it comes to the ending the war on drugs. 
It means standing up as a parent and being bold as a parent in terms of how you deal with your own children and not repeating the hypocrisies and lies. It means finding the ways not to hide one's own history or current use of drugs and being as honest about that as we can be about anything else. It means joining the PTA and advocating for policies that say get the D.A.R.E. program out of this school. There's not a shred of evidence to support it. And let's introduce honest drug education rather than the stuff that our kids are being exposed to. It means letting politicians know they can't have your vote if they're gonna mimic that drug war rhetoric. It means doing that as well. And it means obviously the engagement with friends and allies and family. It means coming out. It means coming out. You know, sometimes I think that uh, there's so many analogies between the movement to reform the marijuana laws and the movement for gay rights in America. Right? Part of it is that they're both issues about individual freedom and about justice, and part of it is also about coming out. I mean, let's face it, you know, 40 years ago, everybody in America knew a gay person. They just didn't know they knew a gay person. <laughs> and therefore, their image of who was gay was shaped oftentimes by the media or by their fears. It was shaped by the reports in the newspapers about what happened in men's rooms and about somebody who was very flamboyant or what you read about on, on, on Christopher Street in New York, right? We didn't know it, right? We didn't, we didn't see it. And therefore, our image of who was the gay person was, was, was different. It was about the extremes, in some respect, of gay culture in that point. Now, of course, everybody in America knows a homosexual, a gay person now. And we know that they can be our sister or our brother or our, our employer or our employee, our colleague, our friend, our cousin, whatever it may be, right? Our views of who gay people are is just transformed. I mean, there, it, it, there is no distinction essentially in so many levels and our society is moving so rapidly in that direction. And all of those myths and assumptions about what gay people were like and what they mean to our children, why we can't have teaching schools or serve in the military begin to evaporate. Well, you know what? Everybody and every one of you today knows a drug user as well. And not just a marijuana and not just a psychedelics user. You know people who use heroin and use cocaine and use methamphetamine and use other drugs, but you don't know they do. Because the ones that you know do are the ones who are screwing up on it, the ones who are visibly affected by it. You're reading about it in the media, and when you say meth kills, when they say to me, meth kills this, meth is that, meth is instantly addictive, you, most of you probably buy it. Because if you happen to know somebody on meth, it's probably a person who had that thing. And because you don't have that expo exposure. And that leads you to say, well, of course, I don't want to, I want, I want to criminalize marijuana, but those drugs, we better keep them illegal. Those drugs, we better punish people for doing what they do there. So some res in one respect, when I say, are you in fact the converted? Are you in fact there? There's a process of education, of understanding, not just the horrors of the drug wars, but the reality of drugs that requires a deeper form of education. When the media lambasted everybody back in the 80s about the crack babies, the crack babies, 350,000 crack babies coming into our schools, oh, this was we all bought it, more or less. We all bought it that somehow these women were monsters, creating monsters, and we we're gonna have to transform how we dealt with kindergartens in the inner cities as a result. Now, when the evidence emerged 10 years later and 15 years later, and they said, actually, uh, uh, yeah, you know, of course women shouldn't smoke crack when they're pregnant. I mean, they shouldn't use cigarettes or alcohol either. But the evidence seems to show that smoking a pack of cigarettes a day probably does more harm to the fetus of the baby than does smoking 
crack. And in fact, those 350,000 impaired babies never showed up. And in fact, the evidence showed that a crack baby maybe was born a little earlier, maybe slightly smaller head circumference, but by the time they got to the age of six or eight or 10, were not that distinguishable from other babies growing up in similar environments. And that what we had called the crack baby was far more a poverty baby than it was a crack baby. Yet, Yet we pass laws and still enforce laws that say that a woman who does that deserves to have her baby ripped from her womb and give it away to somebody else when she gives birth. That's not right, but it plays on the prejudices that exist throughout this society. You know what else happens, of course? Look at what's going on with incarceration in America. We, the United States of America, we have less than 5% of the population of the world, but almost 25% of the world's incarcerated population. 2.3 million out of roughly 9 to 10 million people. We rank first in the world in the per capita incarceration of our fellow citizens. The Russians and the Belarusians keep puffing and puffing to keep up with us. They can't. We left them in the dust. We are number one when it comes to locking up our fellow citizens. Number one, and not just locking up, but then there's the other five million people under the supervision of the parole and probation system also exceeding any rates anywhere else in the world. I mean, apart from, say, a place like North Korea, which is a whole country's a prison state, but that's not our role model, <laughs> right? Our rates, you know, people say, well, that's because we do so much more crime and drugs than anywhere else. America, we're the biggest drug consumer in the world, right? Well, you know what? We're the biggest consumer of almost everything in the world. And in fact, our rates of illegal drug use aren't that much higher than many countries in Europe and elsewhere in the world. We're actually lower in some respects in certain drugs. And our rates of nonviolent crime, actually not that much higher either. We do a little more gun crime than they do in Europe, but nothing compared to parts of Latin America. What we do is we're faster to arrest people, faster to put them behind jail. We keep them behind there, behind bars for much longer. Once they come out, we can do a little gotcha system. Did you give me a dirty urine? Did you not show up for your parole operation officer? Back to prison. And then when you're finally free of that system, we treat you as a second or third class citizen, oftentimes depriving you of the right to vote, get benefits, property, licenses, all that stuff for the rest of your life. We are building a class, 13 million Americans now living with a felony, and a felony conviction in their past. That's not the way for a civilized society to live. Now, the thing driving that more than anything else is this war on drugs. We may have quadrupled, because remember, this massive incarceration, it's not consistent with all of American history. We were not always among the world's leading incarcerators. In fact, until 30, 40 years ago, we were pretty average. It's really a, a, happened within our lifetimes, and for some of you, within half of your lifetimes. I mean, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. And the thing that is driving it more than anything else is this war on drugs mentality, right? I mean, we know that when people rape or murder or sometimes commit you know, significant thefts, that we, like most other societies, have decided that prison or jail is the right way to deal with that. Right? Let's do restorative justice, let's do some diversion, but we, people need to be punished. And we decided we're not going to execute people mostly for that. We're not going to do corporal punishment and cut off their limbs in most societies. We're going to take away your freedom. Right? And for some people, that is the way we have to deal with that. But then there's this part of the population which did not rape, did not steal, did not murder. All they did was grow something, sell something, buy something, use something, consume something. The offense they committed does not lie in the Bible. 
or the Code of Hammurabi. It does not lie throughout Western history or Eastern history or anything. It is a modern creation, a creation of roughly 100 years old that says that these people, these people who sell these substances, not, by the way, those substances, these substances, those people will be treated as criminals and punished oftentimes as severely as rapists and murderers. And when you get that sort of belief system, when you get that belief system and you believe that we have to pay any price and bear any burden in order to make ourselves a drug-free society to eliminate these drugs, to get ever closer to that ideal quasi-totalitarian objective of a drug-free society, then what happens is you land up arresting millions and millions of people. You land up taking the most entrepreneurial of youth in the inner cities and locking them up. <laughs> 50,000 people behind bars in America in 1980 for a drug charge. 500,000 people there today. We lock up more people for violating a drug law in America than all of Western Europe locks up for everything. And they have 100 million more people than we do. Just to put this in some perspective. If another country incarcerated their people the way we do, and if we were more normative in this regard, we would look at that country as engaging in a massive violation of human rights. A massive violation of human rights. We know, we know that when, 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 when other governments torture their citizens, right, whether it's in the criminal justice system or the political system, when they torture, we understand that's a violation of human rights, right? But in our own country, when we put people behind bars for 3, 5, 10, 20, 40, 50 years for a nonviolent offense, perhaps selling drugs to another adult, let me ask you this question. If somebody gave you the choice between 10 years behind bars or seven days of pure tor physical torture, what are you going to pick? Seven days of physical torture or 10 years behind bars? Think about it. We point our eyes at the torturers and say, that's torture, that's a violation of human rights. But when we do things to our own people that exceed the punishments of the torturers abroad, that's a violation of human rights. That's where we need to identify it and call it out for that, for what it is. So now look, let me be clear here. When I'm talking about the massive incarceration in America and that needs to change, right? It's not, that's not the only piece I'm talking about. When we look at the violations of civil liberties and human rights and the ways in which the reactionaries in our society have used the fear of drugs in order to push back the defenses provided by our Bill of Rights, our First Amendment, perhaps the greatest thing about America, right? I mean, that's not all of it. When we look around the world and say, what is the most, re uh, most heinous aspect of the war on drugs? It's not even about incarceration. It's about a million or more people who have died of HIV AIDS, who would be alive today and whose children and grandchildren would be alive today if only every country had treated this, both drugs and HIV, as a health issue from the get-go 30 years ago. When you look at countries like Australia, the Netherlands, even Margaret Thatcher's England in the mid-80s that realized that HIV was being spread among people sharing needles. It wasn't drugs that spread HIV. It wasn't needles that spread HIV. It was people using syringes to take drugs, being infected, and then sharing it that way. And they instantly said, needle exchange programs. 
Yes, we have to stop drug addiction, but first we have to stop HIV AIDS because we have no cure for this deadly disease, whereas most people who are addicted to drugs will eventually put that behind them. And those countries kept their HIV rates below 5%, whereas in many parts of the United States, what do we say here? Oh, no, we can't give a clean needle to a junkie. I mean, why don't you just give booze to an alcoholic? I mean, that would be immoral. We'd be enabling their addiction. We have to tell them to stop, 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 stop. Why do you want to encourage them? And that mentality, that mentality that said, the only way to relate to drugs is abstinence, abstinence, sobriety, abstinence, that's it. And if you can't do it, sorry, guy, got to die. And when you die, not just you die, but your lovers die and maybe your babies die as well. That was the approach that we took in this country and so many other countries did as well. With our government actually standing in the way of the sorts of needle exchange, what are called harm reduction policies. That is one of the most devastating aspects of the war on drugs. Oops, did I forget about Mexico and what's going on in Central America today? And what's going on in Afghanistan and parts of West Africa right now and other parts of the world? I mean, Mexico today? It's like Chicago during the 1920s in the days of alcohol prohibition, Al Capone, times 50 or 100. 60,000 people dead in the war on drugs there in the last five or six years. Criminal organizations exercising political sovereignty in some parts of these territories. I mean, you know, the government's committing human rights abuses in order to get rid of this stuff and, and having this horrific deal, the population caught up in the middle. A three to four hundred billion dollar illegal economy every year, the number one source of revenue for organized and unorganized criminals, political terrorist organizations of the left and the right, all being subsidized. Not you, the consumer. Yes, you, the consumer, because of course, if nobody took drugs, then they wouldn't make their money. And yes, of course, that's right. But that's what people said about alcohol prohibition. If nobody drank alcohol, we wouldn't have Al Capone. And at some point, some people said, you know what? Alcohol consumption is not going away. We have a choice. Do we want Al Capone and the gangsters regulating this stuff, or do we want to have sensible regulation? We're dealing with a remarkably dangerous substance, alcohol. What's the responsible way to deal with this stuff? And it's the same thing, the same type of consciousness we need today with respect to these other drugs. Now, am I saying legalize everything? No, I'm not necessarily saying that. And I'll tell you something, if you ask me and many others how we feel about full drug legalization, by which is normally men selling, selling uh, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, marijuana, like alcohol and cigarettes, many of us, unless we're ideological libertarians, basically say yes on three days a week and no on four. Why? We're ambivalent. Why? Well, if, you, if I'm in a place like an inner city in America where the war on drugs and the prohibitionist policy has entirely failed to protect those communities while at the same time wreaking incredible havoc in terms of the massive incarceration of young men of color and all the violence and intimidation, then I begin to think that legalization looks like it makes a lot of sense. If I'm in parts of Mexico or the favelas of Brazil or other places where you see all the harms of prohibition without any of the benefits, then legalization makes sense. But if I'm in a typical suburb, white, black, or brown in America and many other countries, where drugs are somewhat less available, where there's not the same crimes, not as many people going behind bars, where in fact it does, prohibition seems to work a little bit, then I say let's tone down this war on drugs, let's decriminalize, let's legally regulate marijuana, but do I want to go all the way? I'm not so sure. And quite frankly, politically speaking, it ain't happening anytime soon. Marijuana, yes. 
You know, we've gone from having one-third of the country in favor just seven years ago to the country being even split today. You line up the polls on gay marriage and legalizing marijuana, and they overlap almost exactly. We have a radical transformation having in public opinion, even if political leaders haven't quite embraced it as yet. But more broadly, Here's the way to think about this. Imagine the range of drug policy options from the most draconian over here, you know, Saudi Arabia, Singapore, you know, chop off their heads, cut off their fingers, you know, for a, for a, for a pound of marijuana or a gram of heroin, right? Go down to the other end over here, you know, it's the, uh, the libertarian free market model. It, it, it's, it, it's Milton Friedman's wet dream, right? I mean, it, it, it's the, uh, the, the cigarette model, control model of the 1950s or 60s, right? Now, what we're trying to do because we don't expect anything to go foom like this. And in fact, to some extent, the ping pong debate between the radical drug warriors and the radical drug legalizers, you know, gets a little tired at some point. It's useful for highlighting the issues. It's really more about moving the policy down the spectrum, about re reducing our reliance on the criminal justice system and the criminal law in drug control to the maximum extent possible while still protecting public safety and health. That's what we're trying to do. It's about rolling back those harsh sentences. It's about decriminalizing the drug user. It's about treating drug addiction as a health issue, not a criminal issue. It's about leaving those people who use drugs and don't hurt anybody else alone so that we can move down this. It's about aspiring to a society in which as few people as possible have to have their freedom taken away for the betterment and the survival of the rest of us. It's about going here. And it's ultimately so that we can get to the point, because what I know for sure, based upon all the history and all the science and everything else, is that the best drug control policy, the one that most successfully reduces both the harms of drug prohibition and the harms of the drugs themselves, is the one that lies someplace between here, the sort of still somewhat prohibitionist public health-driven decriminalization policy, and over here, they're all legal, legal regulation policy. What we need to do is to shift both the debate over here, so the debate is not about different types of drug war strategies, but about between different types of drug health and drug peace strategies. It's about shifting the debate and shifting the policy over in this direction. Now that is, of course, a long-term struggle. And there is a movement growing. There is a movement growing. Some people freeze up. Many of you maybe freeze up. And you think, what about the kids? What about the kids? Well, the first thing I have to say is, when it comes to marijuana, I'm less worried about the kids. Why? Not because I don't worry about kids smoking marijuana, but because they already have such incredibly high availability that making it legal is not going to affect anything. I mean, typically, you know, polls consistently 80% of all high school juniors say they can get marijuana easily. Three surveys say it's easier for high school kids to buy, alcohol, buy marijuana than to buy alcohol, right? I mean, among people my age, they ask around, they say, you know, where do you get some marijuana? You know what the most common response is? Have you asked your kids? I mean, you know, I mean so I, I, I don't, I mean, the, if, when we legalize marijuana, who's going to use more marijuana? You know, it's going to be people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Damn, it sure helps that arthritis. <laughs> helps me sleep. I like it better than Xanax. I mean, you know, all, I mean, it, people are going to, I can't believe me. Marijuana is the miracle drug, and we have to legalize it before the government, the pharmaceutical companies, make sure it gets handed out in their way. But, but I know this about kids. I know this about kids, which is basically my message to young people when it comes to, to drugs is don't do it.
And my second message is, don't do it. And my third message is, but if you do do them, there's some things I want you to know. Because my bottom line as your parent who loves you to death ultimately is not did you or didn't you. My bottom line as your parent who loves you to death is are you going to come back home safely at the end of the night and grow up and make me healthy grandkids? That's my bottom line, right? And when, when the government says that they're going to tell me how to recognize if my kid's on drugs, you know how I know if my kid's on ecstasy? They knock on the door at 5 o'clock in the morning on a weekend. Their parents greet them with rage in their eyes. And the kid looks them in the eyes and goes, Ma, Dad, I want you to know how much I love you. And I'm sorry for anything. I, you know. So listen. <laughs> you know, we are, in fact, we are, in fact, a movement of people who love drugs, who hate drugs, and who don't give a damn about drugs. But every one of us believe that the war on drugs is not the way to deal with this. When you see 17 states legalizing medical marijuana and others decriminalizing it, and those of you from Washington and Colorado, Oregon, will hopefully vote to legalize marijuana in a few weeks, when you see the efforts to roll back the prison population and to treat addiction as a health issue and to make more treatment resources, they don't happen just like by spontaneous combustion. They happen because there's a movement growing. When you see people standing up in Europe and Australia and Canada and, and Latin America, it's because there's a movement growing. I'm hoping that all of you in this Bioneers community will identify and join with all of us in the drug policy reform community to create this transformation because we see ourselves as a new movement for freedom and social justice on the block, right? We see ourselves as following the footsteps and standing on the shoulders of those other movements for freedom and justice that came before us. We stand poised in 2012 where the gay rights movement was in the 1980s and the environmental was in the 1970s and the civil rights movement was in the 1950s and the movement from women's rights was in the teens and even the movement to abolish slavery and the slave trade was in the 1840s and 1850s. This is about freedom and about justice. It's fighting against powerful vested interests where the economic arguments are on our side but the powerful economic interests the other side. It's about issues where other countries are moving faster than us and where we lag behind. But we can and will win this struggle. Not today, not tomorrow, in a decade, in two and three, and especially and all the more so if you all join with us. Thank you ever so much. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.